morning, everybody. Uh, so I have the privilege of bringing God's word to you today. And uh, oftentimes, uh, when Clay is out, we get to hear from Pastor Rich. Uh, but today, you're stuck with me. So as we get started, uh, I want each one of you to be thinking about a time in recent memory where you felt like you were in the heat of the battle, a time where your faith was being tested. Or uh, there may have been a time where you felt a consistent and increasing pressure on your soul or the trial came upon you all of a sudden. It may have looked like car troubles or never-ending piles of homework. Or maybe uh, you made it through this past semester uh, seemingly unscathed uh, just to find out your job for the summer fell through or your roommate for the fall um, fell through. Might be the same coworker that um, has been troubling you and testing your patience um, for the past two years. Um, or maybe summer is a hard time for you where um, time with your family uh, is challenging and tests you uh, because you want them to grow in their faith uh, and have the same desire for that that you do. What happens to your heart in these battles? Do you find yourself downcast, wanting to throw in the towel, longing for your situation to change? And does the trial make you joyless or hopeless? Do you feel like all the joy you once had is impossible to recover in that moment? If you're like me, you often struggle in this way. And you need truth that can renew your hope and joy at any time. And just, just like the believers in our text this morning. The text we'll be studying today is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. In this passage, Peter is calling Christians, the Christians he's writing to, uh, elect exiles. And he reminds them that though they suffer, they belong to God. Persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero was ramping up at this time, and the outlook was increasingly hostile and grim for believers in the region. And in verses 3 through 5, and really verses 1 through 12, Peter is framing up the entire letter, reminding his readers of their God and praising him for his glorious salvation. So to help us all get a better feel for the letter, and especially since this is a standalone message, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13. So if you're not already there, please turn with me to 1 Peter. We'll read verses uh, chapter 1, 1 through 13. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 
though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Before we continue, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we come to you in humble dependence, seeking your grace as we hear from your word. Lord, I pray your spirit would work within our hearts to powerfully apply it and make these truths and realities in, the, in this passage real to us um, and that it would serve as hope and joy in the trials and the difficulties that we face each day. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So in our text today, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, we are given three realities of God's salvation that intensify our joy in the present and kindle our hope for the future. Three realities God's salvation, which intensify our joy in the present and kindle our hope for the future. These three realities are our living hope and new birth, the inheritance of our new identity, and the guarding power of our God. To start us off, let's look back at verse 3. We already know that Peter is praising God for his matchless work of salvation, and right off the bat, he identifies the aspect of God's character which motivates everything that God is said to accomplish in verses 3 through 12. God works according to his great mercy. The hope and inheritance granted to us, as well as God's keeping power, are all evidences of his mercy. And when we think of his mercy, what should come to our minds is his compassion on sinners, his willingness to condescend to his rebellious creatures, and in kindness make a way for us to be saved. You all probably know well the description of God's character in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which explains that God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, was moved to elect us, redeem us, and make us alive in Christ. And he did this even when we remained dead in our trespasses, having no righteousness of our own in his sight. And we see this same mercy all throughout salvation history from the very beginning with Adam and Eve as God spares their lives, covers their sin, and gives them a promise. And we continue to see it with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. None of them were sinless, but God came to them and promised to save them. Our God did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. 
And it is the great love and compassion of our Lord that encapsulates these joyful truths proclaimed to us by Peter. The first joyful reality we're reminded of in the passage is that we have received a living hope in our new birth. A living hope in our new birth. And Peter declares, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what is this living hope? What comes to your mind when you think of what hope means in the scriptures? For me, it's certainty. And in our culture, people casually throw around the phrase, I hope, in the same way they would use the phrase, I wish. They wish for all kinds of things, and often badly, but they have no guarantee or certainty they will come about. But the Christian hopes in an unchanging and faithful God, giving us unique certainty in our hope. The adjective of living here shows us that Peter is talking about a specific hope that all Christians partake in. And I don't think it's meant to be very complicated. This living hope we have been born unto comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, what is Christ's resurrection a guarantee of? It's a guarantee that we too will partake in a bodily resurrection. Our living hope is that just as Christ was raised in glory, we too will be raised and cleansed from the body of sin and death that we now carry. According to this verse, it is of God's sovereign initiative that he causes every one of us who trusts in Christ to be born again to this living hope. This hope is a primary intention of God in granting us new birth. In chapter 1, verse 21, Peter tells us that Christ was made manifest for our sake. Us, who through Christ are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. Why? So that your faith and hope is in God. It is so clear that God wants us to possess this resurrection hope. He intends this hope to abide in our hearts daily and for it to be a source of our perpetual joy. Let's take a moment to consider why this is so significant. Why is Peter drawing attention, uh, the attention of these suffering churches to this truth? I think Peter mentions this living hope because it is a distinguishing mark of a Christian. Is it not the hope of a risen Savior that distinguishes uh, our salvation from all others? I also believe that Peter intended for a living hope to communicate a definitive contrast to the hope of the unbelieving world. What hope do those of the world possess? No real hope. Their hopes are but a breath. They have no substance. They are like grass that comes and for a season and soon withers away. Unbelievers are dead in their sins, blind, deaf, given over to slavery of their passions and desires. They have no hope in themselves. It won't last. Everything they put their hope in is perishable and it will be burned up in the coming judgment, providing them no lasting happiness or joy or satisfaction. Think about how easily the hopes of the world are dashed. And before our new birth, this was us. Peter mentions the futile ways of our forefathers in chapter 1, verse 18. Apart from Christ, all life is vain. And even still, we who are in Christ face temptations to this worldly hopelessness. 
Anger and despair are easily stirred at the vanity of our toil. We give so much of our time and energy to our jobs and our educations, trying to create something that lasts or provide a quality service to someone, but it often feels like it's not amounting to anything. We may also be tempted to fear or despair over the loss of our possessions, comforts, or pleasures. We may feel angry or discontent uh, when a longing for a spouse or a home or a particular vocation goes unfulfilled. But this is not how God intends for us to live as believers. Our hope is to live and abide in us as surely as his means of making us born again, the living and abiding word that remains forever. He has planted his word in our souls, granting us new birth and new life. His ultimate aim is to make all things new. And with Christ, we are the first fruits of the new creation. And God intends to finish the work, raising us in glorified bodies and souls at the end of this age. So when we face weaknesses, hardships, calamities, and persecutions each day, those things which tempt us to think, I can't go on another day like this, the battle with that persistent sin, the frustrations of that troublesome coworker, the curse of the ground that refuses to be subjugated, and the weight of insurmountable homework. When you see these things before you, set your mind on the reality that you have a source of joy and hope that only God's children do, and that you will be raised in perfect glory in a day coming soon. This kind of joy and hope is unheard of in the world. It's the hope that Peter talks about when he says to give a defense for the hope that is in you in chapter 3, verse 15. And people are sure to ask about your faith when you live like this. And just as an encouragement to you, because I know how hard it is to lay hold of our living hope each day, Boundless, I have heard numerous testimonies among you of unbelievers asking you about your faith for this very reason. Your hope and joy are in God. You are living an honorable life, and it is shining brightly in this dark world. For this reason, friends, co-workers, and family members are asking you the reason for your hope. And Peter was writing to faithful saints, too. And knowing the trials and temptations we face, he wanted to write them these gospel realities so that they would continue standing firm in their living hope. And that is my desire for you as well. Moving on to verse 4, Peter draws our attention to our second joy-fueling and hope-sustaining reality, the inheritance of our new identity. The inheritance of our new identity. Given what we already learned about God's motive, I'm going to paraphrase the verse a bit, and I think this can be helpful for us. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to an imperishable inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In our modern context, your first response might be to think, what connection is there between being born again and having an imperishable inheritance? The fact that our experience of God's great salvation begins with new birth tells us two things. First, it tells us that something was seriously wrong with our old life. We were dead in our trespasses. And two, it shows us that we have a new father and a new identity in him. Peter points to this all throughout the letter, calling the readers things like obedient children, a chosen race, and a holy nation. 
given the reality of our new identity, we have a new purpose and calling in life. And as we saw, we have a new hope. The new birth has changed everything for us. And thus here we see God's promise of a new inheritance. Inheritance is a word used specifically in the New Testament as a reference to the reward of God's obedient children. It is only through partaking in the new covenant brought into effect by Christ's work on the cross that we are given a new heart and the Holy Spirit to obey God and enjoy both the present and future benefits of his covenant. And as we've been learning with Pastor Farrell, through his redemptive power, Christ unites all of his people to himself, being buried in the likeness of his death and raised to new life. And as a result of this, we have become co-heirs with Christ of all that is promised to him. In his mercy and grace, God has not only borne us again to the hope of a perfected, glorified body and soul, but we will receive and enjoy that which is promised to Christ, namely the new heavens and the new earth. God is working all of salvation history unto the end of a restored, sin-free creation, which we, God's worshipers, are the first fruits of. And at the second coming, Christ will receive his pure and holy people, and he will usher into existence the new heaven and earth, and we will rule with him. One thing that we can do to help us expand our view of this glorious inheritance is to consider the theme of the gift of the land throughout the Bible. In biblical times, the inheritance of a firstborn son was closely linked with land. This was the greatest possession a son could receive. Peter's readers would have understood this, and it's important for us to call to mind in our context since it's quite different. So as we look back to Genesis, we see Adam and Eve lose possession of the land that God had given them when they sinned, and the earth comes under the curse. Later, God gives the post-flood world to Noah and his descendants, but humanity continues to corrupt the world. But then, Abram comes along, and God calls him out of his pagan culture and makes him a promise. He he promises that his offspring will enjoy the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and that he will become many nations and be blessed. According to Waltke, the gift of land, or the promised land as we know it, is a unifying theme to the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament, which is a history and working out of these promises to Abraham. So as we follow God's gradual fulfillment of his promises among the nation of Israel, we begin to see many parallels to the identity and experience of the church in this age, with one obvious difference. God called Israel his firstborn son, and in Deuteronomy, he declares, Am I not your father who created you? He created Israel as a chosen people for his treasured possession, to be a holy nation that would worship him. Peter describes the church in the exact same way in this letter, calling her a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a people for his own possession. Just as Israel has a similar identity to the church, the nation was given the promise of land, and this was to be their final dwelling place and inheritance. So it is with the church and the new heavens and new earth. We see the beginning of Israel's salvation experience begin with deliverance from slavery in Egypt, just as Christians are delivered from slavery to sin and Satan. as Christians are delivered from slavery to sin and Satan. 
The Israelites were sojourners in a foreign land prior to reaching, prior to reaching the promised land. They were resident aliens. And in verse 1, Peter calls the believers elect exiles or aliens. We live presently in a land that is not our home. We also see that Israel was promised when they arrived in the land, there would be homes they did not build, wells they did not dig, and orchards that they did not plant. Likewise, the church is promised the river of the water of life, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit. And there will be dwellings for us that we did not build. For Christ said in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to be with me. So if you're wondering, what's this main difference between Israel and the church? It's the sign of the new covenant, the circumcision of the heart. And Israel was continually removed from their land because of persisting unbelief. The nation ultimately refused its sonship, and God only saved a remnant under the new covenant. But we are recipients of that new covenant. Through Christ's obedient sonship and his sufficient atonement for sins, we have been redeemed and united to him, and we are able to worship God from the heart, unlike Israel, and we are guaranteed to persevere to the end and to enjoy the fulfillment of the blessings of resurrection life in the land of the new heavens and new earth. Is this new creation, this, this new creation and land that God and man would dwell is what all of salvation history has been moving toward from the very beginning and is the assurance that we will inherit the new heaven and new earth, reigning with Christ as co-heirs that brings us present joy and future hope amidst a dark and wearisome world. But how can we apply this reality in our day-to-day lives? Peter had a specific intention in calling this to mind. His readers were suffering intensely for their love for Christ, and they were exiles in their native lands because of their association with him. They were being heavily persecuted by the emperor. Slaves were being beaten and unjustly treated by their masters. Wives were living with harsh, unbelieving husbands, just to name a few examples. These Christians had counted the cost to follow Christ, and they were paying severely. They had lost much in order to gain Christ. They likely they were experiencing the same things we do today. Loss of relationships, loss of possessions, loss of jobs, loss of respect of the world around them. But by setting our minds on the hope of our inheritance, it combats this fear of loss or hopelessness in loss. Both sin and Satan relentlessly harass us with thoughts of what we will lose presently through our obedience and faithfulness to Christ. They try to distract and consume us with things that will pass away with this earth. Possessions, pleasures, desires to please man. But in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, we are called to set our hope fully on that which can never be taken from us, that which is imperishable. It will never spoil. It has no expiration date. It is undefiled, pure, and holy, and it is unfading, eternally glorious. Peter likely had in mind when Christ said, Lay up your treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the end, we will be with Christ, and we will reign with him. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. So I exhort you to take note of your desires and temptation. I often find myself idolizing my schedule and plans. I love having a plan, but sometimes sinfully so. Contrary to those desires, the Lord loves showing me that it is his plan alone that will be accomplished. But when my hopes and momentary success are lost, is an opportunity for me to rejoice in the true success of living by faith unto the reception of an indestructible inheritance in Christ. What are you afraid to lose in obedience? Will you take a job with a less desirable income but a greater opportunity for ministry? Or will you fear the loss of temporary comforts and pleasures of a more lucrative position? Young men, do you desire to spend more time with the church and growing as a man of God than you do to frittering away your time gaming or watching ball games, but you fear the loss of momentary pleasures? Young women, do you have a growing desire to devote yourself to a home and to familial tasks, but fear being misunderstood or losing the respect of your career-driven friends and family? Hopefully these things resonate with you, and considering our glorious inheritance and tempting moments will help us to guard our minds from fear of temporary loss and to act in faith. What God is keeping in heaven for us can never be taken away, so we need not fear the loss of anything on this side of eternity. Our final truth that gives us ammunition for hope and joy comes from verse 5. It is the guarding power of God. The guarding power of God. God has already borne these believers again to two joyful and unshakable hopes. But now Peter wants them to consider how God is working among them in the present age. Note, like before, I'm going to paraphrase this a bit. According to God's great mercy, you, by his divine power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In his mercy, God has not only borne us again to new life, new hope, and new inheritance, but he is actively ensuring that we are preserved for final salvation. As creator and king of all creation, God alone possesses the power to save humanity. Our election, new birth, and justification have been accomplished. Our glorification is yet to come. And in the present, God is sanctifying us. He's preparing us for our full experience of his salvific work. We know that God exercises his divine guarding power both within and without us. Within us, God has granted us his Holy Spirit who combats our sinful desires and helps us to exercise faith and walk in righteousness. We learn about this in Galatians 5, 16, and 17 that tells us that the desires of the Spirit are opposed to the flesh, keeping us from doing the sinful things that we would desire to do. We also know that the Spirit illuminates our minds to God's truth and helps us to put on the mind of Christ. Without us, God exercised his wise providence 
through the circumstances of our daily lives and the people that we encounter. Many of us can recall with joy and gratitude those who shared the gospel with us before our conversion. And the longer we walk with Christ, the more we can see how particular experiences and people have helped our faith grow. It is this providence uh, in trials that Peter draws our attention to in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter. So, we see that God exercised his saving power in and around us, but Peter is really wanting us to focus here on what it means to be guarded through faith. The Greek word used for guarded is the same word for kept from the previous verse when it describes God keeping our inheritance. This word is one of numerous military terms that Peter uses in the letter, like girding up the loins of your mind, waging war, arming yourselves, standing firm. But this phrase in particular references military garrisons, towns or city, cities that were heavily fortified because they were important areas to defend or launch attacks from. Like these fortified cities, we are being guarded by God's immeasurable, insurmountable strength through an impenetrable faith for final salvation. And while the ungodly will be judged and perish in their unbelief, we who are in Christ will be judged righteous on this final day, and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will have persevered in the power that he mightily worked within us. And Christ will get all of the praise and honor and glory for our salvation. What we can glean from this this point of God's keeping power is truly one of my favorite aspects of Peter's letter. We're taught in Scripture that without faith, no one can be saved. And thus we know that the greatest enemy of our salvation is unbelief. This is why the author of Hebrews warns us, using the illustration of Israel's rebellion and heart hardening as they strayed away from God and their unbelief. He says in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Take care, brothers, that there be, any of, that there be in any of you an un- evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For you have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Don't ever let yourself be fooled differently. Unbelief kills. It is your greatest danger. But mercifully, we hold in our hand a great and hopeful promise that when we face trials and sin of any kind, we can know without a doubt that God will sustain our faith. He who authored our faith will also perfect our faith. We will finish our days in faith and be saved. We who have been born again will not perish in unbelief. That is God's sure promise. Further, we see uh, in verses 6 through 7 how God unveils uh, more to us about how he guards through faith. We see that his sustaining power and perfecting of our faith is done largely through trials. All trials are tests of faith. And in every one of them, we have an opportunity before us to believe the truth and to act according to it. 
or to believe a lie and act according to it. God equates these daily trials to a fiery furnace that is used to purify precious metals. But our faith is of an infinitely greater value than gold or silver, which perishes. God uses the heat of these trials to bring the impurities of our heart to the surface, exposing them that we may confess them and repent of them. And in this way, God takes the suffering of the sin-cursed world and uses it to ensure that unbelief is uprooted from our hearts and that he is glorified in us. For me, daily trials look like entrusting the Lord each morning with the regular unpredictability of the workday, not knowing whether moving cows from pasture to pasture or loading them on a trailer will go smoothly or whether they will break out, exhaust me, and make everything in my day take three times as long. Will the grass and crops we planted actually grow? Or will the cows get to them and decimate them in just a few hours? Meaning days of planting and sweat will have no reward. When these thoughts flood my mind, I have an opportunity to bring to mind the Lord's ultimate plan for my life. And that is to see my faith perfected and my salvation completed. And he is doing this through these trials. I can rejoice that he is continuing to perform this gracious work of the restoration of the world and my salvation in and through my day-to-day life. By faith, we can rejoice that God works all things to our good and growth in Christ-likeness, and that he is giving us the opportunity to display the power of the gospel as we live by faith in our trials. I know that you all face situations like these as well. And you can believe and rejoice that God is at work. Your trials and your faith are marks of his guarding you for salvation. And don't get me wrong here. My feelings are not always in order in the midst of trials. In fact, the heat and pressure of them often has my feelings all over the place as all sorts of temptations swirl around in my heart. But this is when the truth of God's merciful salvation and his guarding power can stabilize us. We don't deserve anything from God, yet he is at work in our lives. He wants us to grow in faith, and he gives us these opportunities in all forms of trials to remove our affections from ourself and from the perishable things of this world in order to have a greater and greater enjoyment of him. He desires for me and for you to recognize our life is not our own, but it was bought with the precious blood of Christ unto the end of bringing glory to Christ and enjoying him forever and ever. And so I pray that as you have been reminded today of our hope and new birth, the inheritance of our new identity and the guarding power of our God, that you now have rock-solid truths to set your mind on, that you might enjoy the blessings of unshakable hope and unshakable joy as we journey through this world that is not our home. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us your word, that you have given us your promises through the prophets, through the apostles, through your Holy Spirit, that we might have them today, 
that we may, might know you through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may be sure that in our new birth we have a hope that is unfading, that we will be raised with Christ in glory one day at the end of this life. And Lord, I pray that in our trials and our suffering and the afflictions that we all face, that we will see them as opportunities for your glory to be put on display and that we will trust and be grounded by the knowledge that you are working in us and you are working in those trials to keep us and preserve us for our final salvation. And Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.